Welcome to the Teachers Podcast, in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life-work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I was so privileged to quiz head teacher Mungo Shepherd from Ash Green Community Primary School in Halifax. So I first met Mungo back in 2012 when I was on the supply circuit in Calderdale and Ash Green was one of my favourite schools to visit and it's still got such a special place in my heart. So children are just a real credit to the school and also the staff that work so incredibly hard to give them the best future possible. When we arrived the other day to um, film and record the podcast, the children were just leaving assembly and they were walking through the hallways. And you know what it's like when visitors arrive, like it's prime time for, you know, a little bit of messing about. But they didn't fail. The children were just so polite and so beautiful. And it was just such a nice atmosphere and memories came flooding back and I felt sad a little bit. But anyway, when I worked at the school, it was on an ad hoc basis. It was the odd day here and the odd day there. And I just always felt so supported by the senior leaders. It's it's one clear memory that I have about the school. Now, people would be in my classroom frequently, like the senior leaders, and that could be viewed as quite a negative thing, but it never felt that way. And I knew it wasn't for that. I didn't feel like they were there because of me. I felt like they were there to make sure that the children were treating visitors with respect. And as somebody on supply at the time, it really meant a lot to me because supply teachers can feel pretty insignificant sometimes and powerless and that decisions that you make about behaviour or or things like that are not supported by the leaders. So my answer was always yes when I got offered Ash Green and I know that that was mainly because I knew I was valued by the leadership. And I actually believe that staff feeling valued by their leaders is really important in keeping teachers doing what they're doing. So keeping them in school, especially in the retention crisis. And that's why I wanted to interview Mungo, because I knew he'd have some great things to share with us all. So during the interview, Mungo mentions about being a national leader of education and what that entails. So he also talks about life-work balance and also what the budget crisis means for his school. And he explains it in a way that's really easy for everyone to understand. And it just shines a light on why schools are actually struggling to keep pace in terms of budgets when it's actually reported that schools are receiving more money now. And I just think it's a really uh, useful, useful listen, especially if you've not, if you've not got an understanding of what's happening in terms of budgets in schools right now. So another thing that I remember from my time at Ash Green was that people stick around. They stick around in school. And they also stick around sometimes in year groups. And I remember viewing that as a really positive thing. It it definitely wasn't negative. So we also chat about the positives of having a career in just one school and how that can really benefit the children as well. So I hope you find the interview interesting. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview and letting us come into your school. Um, So we've obviously known each other for quite a while. I've been into your school before on supply, but I thought it would be really helpful for the listeners and people who are watching on YouTube. What is it um, that got you into teaching in the first place and what's your journey been throughout teaching so far? 
Yeah, um, I suppose a fairly um, unorthodox start to my career, basically. I mean, when I was at Polytechnic, as was in those days, or universities it is now, I did a communication arts degree and I quite wanted to be a, a journalist. Uh, okay. I'd love to have been a footballer, but I didn't have the ability. But I always quite enjoyed working with children. So teaching was always there. Interestingly enough, most of my teachers at secondary school tried to put me off explaining that even then, you know, the workload was very difficult, etc. Uh, so when I left um, university, I actually worked for two years down at a dye works quite close to where I lived. Met some fantastic friends and enjoyed, um, I suppose, the camaraderie of working there, but it didn't really feed my brain that much. And so on a Friday, I used to have a day off and I went back to volunteer at my old school, Field Lane at Rastrick. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I got a lot out of it, spoke to a lot of people who worked in the school and decided to take the plunge to do a PGCE, uh, which I did two years later at um, Trinity and All Saints, now Leeds Trinity University. And um, I was lucky enough to come and get a job at this school, as was in 1997, mm -hmm. as a newly qualified teacher. Uh, at that time, Ash Green Community Primary School was down the road only. Uh, we're now a split site school. Uh, so I came and worked in year five for a couple of years, then into year six. I uh, became the deputy head after four years. Two or three years later, we took on a children's centre. Uh, so there was far-reaching kind of aspects to the job that hadn't been there when I came. And then the year after that, this school where we're sitting now, which had been the former Mixingdon Junior and Infant School, was closed down and reopened as the second site of our school. So at that stage, whilst I was the deputy head, I was all, always then the person in charge of one of the sites, let's say. The head teacher at that time, who remains a very good friend of mine, very important man in education, David Kirk, uh, went on to take over the headship at another school in 2007 and worked here just one day a week. So in effect, in 2007, after 10 years here, uh, I was uh, leading the school four days a week, a split site school, mm -hmm. a big school. And then in 2009, after David moved on, uh, I took on the headship of this school. So I've been the head here for 10 years, seen many, many changes, of course. And here we are now, a split site school, uh, with, with children from 3 to 11, um, around about 500 pupils altogether at the moment. School, not really any room to get any bigger at the moment, but with uh, new houses being built just down the road, I think about 90 new houses, the next challenge might well be if there's another couple of hundred children living in Mixon and what we're going to do to try and get them in our school. Mm -hmm. So lots and lots of change uh, within my career uh, at this school so far. So when I... Um when I contacted you and asked for that kind of overview, yeah. you mentioned about being a national leader of education. So, yeah. you know, how did that come about and what does it mean to be a national leader of education? Yeah, okay. So in uh, 2013, I was made a national leader of education, which was a great honour. Just the uh, the words themselves sound good and having yeah. a, an acronym after your name, as long as it's not a bad one. <laughs> uh, but most importantly, it meant the school was a national support school. So what happened then, the way I took on the role, some people who are national leaders of education then um, are very interested in going and working in other schools and perhaps going there as heads, particularly if schools are, have hit difficulty and so on and in an advisory capacity. And whilst I was interested in that and did that and went and worked at a school in Kirklees and another school in Calderdale, that was very much trying to support leadership structures that were in place, bringing things in that I knew had been successful at this school. But the most important thing for me was to enable and facilitate people at this school to have even better opportunities. So we then um, had two different specialist leaders of education who were called SLEs, who I was able to sort of harness in order that they could go and model outstanding teaching and learning in other places, perhaps develop things that were, you know, real strengths of theirs. 
So we had a young lass working at the school who was absolutely brilliant uh, around initial teacher training. And she went and worked within that and worked for a local teaching school alliance, then developing um, teacher training courses um, some opportunities for uh, aspiring teachers and she actually moved on from that to then go and work in that capacity full time. So I saw it as a real springboard, not, not for myself necessarily as a national leader of education, but within the school for opportunities for people here. So what would often happen is within Calderdale, if there was a school where perhaps there was a little bit of an issue at that time, uh, maybe it was key stage two standards, maybe it was maths teaching, whatever that might be, because we were a national support school, quite often we'd be able to have um, teachers from here modelling practice within school, going to other schools to demonstrate that practice, perhaps supporting teachers, perhaps supporting leaders at levels. Uh, so we had that status for five years up until 2018, which was fantastic. Um, one, of the, one of the difficult things is that uh, for schools in our circumstances, it's quite difficult to retain that kind of status because a lot of it as well is dependent on your results and attainment and progress. Um, so a couple of uh, years I had to sort of like say, look, despite the fact that our attainment's not that great in that year, particularly after Curriculum 14 and the new progress measures, uh, this is what we're doing here, and that was accepted fine. Uh, but then we did lose that status in 2018, as did quite a few other schools at that mm. time, and they will roll on. So the shame of it is, it, it is very difficult, I would say, for schools in this circumstance, uh, where you're serving a community with an awful lot of deprivation issues, mm -hmm. um, for leaders in that school to have that tag. So I was very privileged and honoured to have that, but as I say, it was far less for me, and it was much more for other people in the school to have professional opportunities. Yeah, and I do think, because obviously I did supply here uh, yeah. quite a bit in the past, um, and I think that sort of shone through, you know, the work that you were doing in other schools and across um, the, the community, because I did obviously go to quite a lot of other schools as well. Yeah. Do you feel like that put Ash Green on the map? Once again, as I say, without wanting to bang that drum too much, the fact that if you've got schools, and there are many other fantastic schools in Calderdale in very similar circumstances, but if you've got schools that are serving um, areas of high deprivation and yet the status of that school is being elevated for what they're doing, yeah. and you're able to then go and perhaps support um, schools sometimes in very different circumstances so a couple of years ago we went and supported a school that's not that far away geographically but is in a very very different kind of um, socio-economic circumstance and the head there was fantastically receptive mm -hmm. and she recognized that a lot of the work that we were having to do to drive standards here uh, for children who had much less life chances if we we're able to bring that in at that school they would really go on and thrive there so we were able to go there and um, and work with them on a lot of their um, strategy around lesson observation, around book scrutiny, around um, developing key performance indicators for year groups and how that can then all be matched together. And um, the children in that school went on to make accelerated progress, not just to do with us, far from it, it was harnessing what they could do. Yeah. So I think it was terrific. Um, and I think probably other NLEs and other national support schools in our sort of circumstance would say the same, that it's the recognition for those staff who have to work incredibly hard as all teachers do, but often against a real backdrop of difficulty, that, that what they're doing is something that can then influence the practice elsewhere. So I think that's great. And Ash Green, yeah, very much on the map. Um, that's a big part of things here. If there's any work that I'm doing that actually reflects very well on the school, and if there's work that other senior people are doing that's reflecting well on the school, then that's brilliant, not only for the school, but also for the community. Yeah. Um, you know, the community, the children, yeah. the children, the children and the community take an awful lot of pride in this school and the more positive publicity that this school is getting or the reputation that school's getting as a school that's supporting other schools, the better that is for the community of Mixingdon, of course. Yeah. 
Okay, um, so obviously you're a head teacher and you're coping with what's been branded as the funding crisis. You know, what does that really mean mm. um, in real terms? You know, how are you, how are you coping with it? You know, yeah. what's happening? Yeah, what's happening? Well, what's happening is over the last five years in real terms, uh, to use your phrase there, Claire, um, schools are, are much worse off. Um, you know, the Department for Education will give you the figures that shows that school funding has gone up a little bit, and it has, but quite simply not enough. Um, so if we knock off the billions, which is 43 billion this year and 42 billion last year, and I was to say, well, I gave you 42 pounds last year to do the shopping, and this year I'm giving you 43, why aren't you pleased? That's because the shopping's now costing 50 pounds. Yeah. But also there's a lot of things that you used to be able to get for free that you now have to pay for. Mm -hmm. And also there's lots of other things that used to be quite plentiful that are no longer there. Because that analogy kind of sums things up for schools at the moment. So local authorities have been massively stripped back. So you've seen a lot of change in your time in education, and I certainly have. So things that we used to not take for granted, but they were there. Behaviour support, education psychology, lots of different services around the child are no longer there. So schools are having to either seek that out and pay for it privately, they're having to try and grow their own solutions. Now that's what we've done a lot at Ash Green. So at Ash Green, as you probably know, Claire, you know, we employed a school-based social worker, one of the first schools to do that, I believe in the country, certainly at primary. Um, and we have a homeschool links manager and we have a pastoral lead worker. Now that's not because we're cash rich, we're not. What we've decided to do is reinvest some of the money that maybe would have been delegated back to schools back then to actually have our own professionals to deal with the vulnerabilities in our community. But of course what that's doing is that's costing a lot of money to support the community, but it's worth it. But they are some of the services that you would have used to being able to, to get. You would have got them for free, then you would have had to pay for them, and now they're not there at all. So that's an issue. I chaired Primary Heads in Calderdale for five years, and within those five years, what I would hear from other schools were some quite horror stories, really, of you know, one head teacher was saying he had lost in double figures in staff over the last two years, not replaced them, right from cleaners, general kitchen assistants, midday supervisors, into support staff in the classroom, and yet we're still looking at balancing a budget that was in six-figure deficit. Now, that's the reality, that virtually every school now, the budget that they're setting is now in deficit, because they had a certain level of funding which they frugally stuck to. So you set up a staff structure, you set up curriculum resources, etc., for the money that you got coming in. Now that that money is less in real terms, there has to be cuts. So what's happening is in a school like ours, we have amalgamated roles if somebody's left. We've not replaced people where they've left. We've thought, basically, who can do more mm. on what they're already doing? So when we come to talk about work-life balance, life-work balance, unfortunately, the two don't match yeah. because people are having to do more for less. Every school's looking at financial issues at the moment. Everybody's got a decision to make. Now, those decisions can range from, do you, unfortunately, as we've had to do here, think, well, we're going to hold off on things like redecoration programmes, refurbishment programmes. If we've got a member of staff leaving, how can we look at how we don't replace that member of staff? That's the first thought. They call it natural wastage, which is a horrible term. But what it's meaning is if you can naturally do that, then you're not, they're going to have to get rid of the next person or think about are you going to have to make a redundancy or a cut like that. But then that can range right the way to schools that unfortunately are already at that precipice where they're saying, well, unfortunately, we've made all the savings we can, so the only thing we can do next year is somebody is going to, unfortunately, have to lose their job. And I've heard of conversations where 
support staff have been got together and there's been an explanation that this is what's going to happen and therefore schools are managing that the best they can and support staff might be thinking well actually if that's on the horizon then I will look for something elsewhere so mm -hmm. people are having to leave a job maybe a little bit unwillingly there's all sorts of maverick things going on. So from a head teacher's perspective, I know of head teachers and deputy head teachers who've gone to a part-time timetable. They're going to point eight because they say, look, if we can do that and we can cover the leadership within our school, we're actually keeping the wolf from the door. We're saving the jobs of other people too. So it's a very selfless gesture. But clearly what that's doing for them is that's meaning they're being paid less, their pension's being affected too, but they're putting the children first where they can. Unfortunately, what I would say is that a great majority of the decisions that are being taken are for financial reasons and not for the benefit of children. Mm. And that's not because school leaders are wanting to do that, it's because they're being forced to do that. So you'll have heard of all sorts of things going on up and down the country. Not that far away in Kirklees, we've got a head teacher who teaches the entire school for half a day a week. He teaches them all art one afternoon so all his teachers can have PPA but he doesn't have to pay supply costs. Because what he's thinking there is, I might be saving there Oh, if you think about that, it's 200 afternoons, isn't it? Yeah. You know you know the supply teaching game, you're looking at maybe the best part of £20,000 yeah. there. Yeah. £20,000 by me doing that and me working for longer and later at night. Yeah. But even he himself would probably say, is that necessarily to the benefit of the children or am I just kind of looking after them? Yeah. Um, there are other schools up and down the country we're looking at four and a half day weeks and thinking if we then send all the children home at that time, mm -hmm. Uh, and we're saving on heating and we're saving on lighting and all the rest of it, that's a decision to make. Uh, and there's all sorts of stories up and down the country from head teachers I know where head teachers are actually taking on far more jobs. I mean, you've been at our school before, you know that senior leaders at our school have done lunch duties every day forever. Yep. Uh, yep. Part of the reason there, of course, is to make sure that the children are behaving beautifully, that there's nothing to pick up in the afternoon. But it's also because you've seen a dwindling over the years in midday supervisors and GKAs and so on because you know that actually senior staff are stepping in to wipe tables, yeah. to harness 10, 11 year old children who want to help and they do and they're brilliant by scraping away dinner plates and so on like that and at the same time what you're doing is when somebody leaves who might have been working in your kitchen or your dining hall, you're not replacing them because you're thinking how can we do more. Head yeah. teachers who open schools up in the morning and lock them up at night to save on caretaking costs. Um, staff who help with cleaning, you know. The, this is the reality now that's happening in schools. And what happens is, in a way, we're probably fools to ourselves, but actually it's driven by the fact that you, you, you're desiring those outcomes for your children. So everybody in school will just keep doing more and more and more. And unfortunately, you know, what we've not spoken about is that is clearly affecting recruitment and retention because mm -hmm. you will see an awful lot of teachers who don't stay in the profession that long no. because they, it's not quite what they signed up for. But you will also have teachers who've been in the profession for longer who are now thinking, this is getting more and more difficult. This is not the job I had before. Um, and see, one of the big frustrations for me about funding is what's not always spoken about by people in school, but everybody knows about it, is it is that funding crisis with the local authority. And I think when you're working with the most vulnerable children, so in a community like this, and you've seen where there's been um, intervention, they, there may have been youth offending teams, there might have been um, uh, CAMS workers, there might have been people who were coming to run groups and so on on the estate. When you know that there's less of that going on, you know that you're actually picking up more problems from outside, which is leading, we have a almost zero rate of exclusions here. But for a lot of schools, it is leading to far more pressure on behaviour, which then either leads to exclusions or it leads to schools who've got massively inclusive ethos. Unfortunately, 
indirectly, perhaps affecting the outcomes of other children because they're picking up more. They're having to do more for families uh, because those services aren't there. And then when you actually come into school to see that the base funding, in real terms, has also been cut, then unfortunately it's meaning that everything's being stretched. Hopefully, hopefully there's a huge amount of publicity going on at the moment. I've been doing a lot of work um, with colleagues across the north and there's fantastic work going on in other parts of the United Kingdom as well. Absolutely brilliant. There is a lot of pressure being put on government now. It's where the government are listening. It's where the government feel that they've got the money that they can redistribute. I think they know, the DfE know that there's not enough funding. Um, but the Chancellor will obviously have to say where that money's going to come from. Um, you know, you've got two prime ministerial hopefuls at the moment and all of those men, it turned out, didn't it, in the last six or seven who were there were falling over themselves to talk mm -hmm. about how much more they would fund in education and it's now a case of seeing whether they actually go and do that yeah. and whether they can afford to do that. And I think the tricky thing is, and um, it's, it's been mentioned to me before in, in another interview with another head, is that it's... <laughs> The problem is that teachers and the education sector, we're not willing to let the children down. No. So we do more and really that's not, we're doing more that's not sustainable, but it's kind of justifying that the cuts are okay. Completely. But actually working 70, 80 hours a week is not sustainable. People are not going to stay. Um, that is correct that you've said, though, Claire, that the unfortunately the consequence is that people don't stay, so recruitment and retention suffers. So once again, another effect to that is that the teaching profession and the whole body are not as skilled as they used to be and there's too quick a turnover. Um, you're right. And the sad thing about that as well is, okay, in, in a results-based business where the DfE or Ofsted, whoever, talk about how many more good or outstanding schools or standards are as high as they ever are, that's because people are having to work harder and harder than ever before. Now, somebody might say, and you can understand this, well, people should work as hard as they could ever work. But they're perhaps not realising that teachers are going well beyond that and they're going beyond breaking point. And it's not reasonable to expect that people work for 70 or 80 hours a week. I also don't think that the, <clears throat> that the phrase working hard is the right one to use because you can work really hard and you can work for a short amount mm -hmm. of time. It's the length that's of right. time that they're having to work. And I think that's the main issue. Yeah. I just want to um, sort of ask a, a different kind of question yeah. going a different direction. Um, so obviously you've been asked green for quite a number of years is it 18 years 22, 22 years yeah. wow do you feel that you've missed out by just being in one school no um i think if i'd been in this school for 22 years and this school hadn't changed then absolutely and i know that traditionally there will have been people certainly in my own secondary school at brooksbank i thought those teachers were old when i went in 1984 and then when i went to meet with the chair of secondary heads a couple of years ago there i thought well they're all still here and they're not that old and i know sometimes people do stick in the same school for a long time and do the same thing i think for me i've done so many different things i touched on earlier the way that the school has evolved i mean i came to the school um a one-site school um, 22 years ago, the school's now a two-site school, it's got a children's centre, it's got an extended schools agenda, it's working incredibly closely with all aspects of this community, so an outdoor centre, an adventure playground centre, the children's centre, the church, so there's all these things that have developed as we've gone along, but I've been very lucky here, I've had a fantastically supportive set of governors, and the governors have enabled me to go and do such a lot away from the school as well. We talked a little bit about the National Leader of Education work, and therefore I've been very fortunate I've been able to go into other schools and influence practice there. I also worked for two different universities. Uh, I worked for the uh, University of Leeds, Leeds Trinity, 
um, for quite a while, going out to look at um, training teachers and writing reports and moderating that uh, in supporting the course and making recommendations um, for the teacher training that they were running from Leeds. As a result of that, then uh, I got asked to go and work for the University of Worcester, which is a fantastic opportunity, a completely different part of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I stepped up there to becoming the chief external uh, for Worcester. So I would basically lead a group of professionals, which was fantastic for me. I was doing that as a serving head teacher, but I was working with people from Cambridge University, from Leeds University, from other educational institutions. And I was going out to schools and I was talking to professionals and head teachers in Worcestershire, beautiful part of the country down in the Malverns there and making recommendations of how they could improve their teacher training and then what I was able to then do was join that up with Leeds and then as teaching school alliances developed here I was a big part of that we were asked um, if we would lead a teaching school alliance and I, and I went down that line and I looked at it and I thought, actually, I'm not quite sure we've got the capacity as a primary school. And I think at the time we had eight concurrent maternity leaves, which is always wow. an issue, wow. isn't it, in primary? <laughs> um, so what we decided to do was we actually supported Trinity Academy, which is brand spanking a new secondary school up the, up the road. Very, very successful, terrific school. Uh, and we became a strategic partner. So what we were able to do then is we were able to uh, lead our influence there. That's been um, working with them to go and support primary practice. It's been in the development of their teacher training, which I was able to bring a lot to bear, having worked elsewhere too. So I just feel that my job has enormously evolved. I've also been, um, again, I'm a big football fan and I look at somebody with longevity like Sir Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger or something like that. You're developing teams all the time, you're starting again. Sometimes look around and think, actually, there are a couple of members of staff who've been here longer than me. We've got an amazing nursery teacher who's been here for 30 years and she wow. is just wonderful. But her practice has evolved incredibly. With a teaching assistant retiring next week after 28 years. And I think, crikey, what a shift. But I'm getting on for that now. My yeah, silver yeah. anniversary coming up soon. But for me, it's the fact that I look now and the deputy head at the school, who's fantastic, Stephen, you know Stephen, mm -hmm. the assistant head teachers at the school, the wider leadership teams, nearly all of them have come in as newly qualified teachers yeah. underneath my headship. And I'm really proud of that, or when I was the deputy head. They've got to a level now where they are all very, very capable of leading their own schools. Mm -hmm. And when people move on from here, it's very rare that they take a sideways step. They're going for a promotion, they're going for an advisory role, they're going to work on something to do with teaching schools. So that makes me really proud. So there's always a new challenge. So we've got two newly qualified teachers starting here in September who've both been initial teacher trainees here. And I'm thinking if we sat on this couch in 10 years' time, if I was still here or if I wasn't, I'm pretty certain that they're going to go on and do great things either here or somewhere else. So it never stands still at all. And every year we've got a new bunch of children. We've got a new bunch of parents. Yeah. One of the wonderful things for me here, and some people might find that not a good thing, but I love it, is that I'm now seeing children leaving school who I taught their mums yeah. or their dads. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got kids from my first class in 1997 who've had children who've now gone through the school. Yeah. Uh, and... Generation-wise, it might not be that long until I'm teaching grandchildren. Maybe then it will be time for me to retire. So you've just mentioned teaching, actually. Yeah. Um, so how do you keep sight, then, of what it's like to be a teacher as you're obviously in leadership? Yeah, great question. Um, strategically, I'd like to think that I keep sight of it through a lot of the structures that we've got set up. I mean, you're in this morning and there's two weeks to go, and yet I know for a fact there are still three lesson observations going on 
while we speak in here, mm -hmm. typicality dropping observations. So a lot of it's through strategic leadership. I need to make sure that I'm harnessing the best people on a regular basis to go and monitor what's going on in the classroom and then come back to me on that. So last night, I'd had governor's meetings last night, finished about six, and then I sat down and read four, typicality lesson observations that my senior leaders had done for me yesterday and they'd done a brilliant job. So I knew straight away what the strengths were that were going on in the classrooms, what the targets were. So that's in a strategic way. What I also need to do is I need to make sure, which I love doing, Claire, and you know this from when you've worked here, is that I'm in every classroom in every lesson. It's partly to do with my knees that I have to get up and stretch them every <laughs> half an hour. But I've sat in the office this morning done a little bit of paperwork, done some emails, and then before I've come into you, I've made sure that I've dropped into every single classroom and I've seen what's going on. And a lot is very nice soft touch. How are the children doing? Praise that little lad there who struggles with behaviour sometimes, who's telling me, I've had a brilliant morning, Mr Shepherd. That's important. Go and make sure that the staff are all feeling good. Make sure that the classrooms are running really well. But at the same time, Let's link those two things together, that last night I had a lesson observation which was talking about a young guy who's teaching here who's got lots of strengths going on and there's a couple of targets. So if I'm dropping in, as I did, at five past ten to watch a maths lesson that he's then going to be delivering, I'm then thinking, is he deploying that adult as well now as they've asked him to do? Yeah, yeah. You know, are the children engaged? Are the most ability, uh, sorry, the highest ability children being pushed on? So that's a big part of my role too. And then of course, I still teach myself as well. Yeah. Um, not a huge amount, but I have a regular weekly commitment, actually on a Thursday, we sit here today uh, with year six. Uh, and I love that uh, because that was where my passion was, you know, as these children are really turning into young adults. Mm -hmm. uh, and whilst my strengths, I felt, were always in things like teaching maths and PE and so on, over the last couple of years, I've been teaching Year 6 music, uh, which right. Ofsted 1998 will find hilarious, since I think it was my music that was inadequate while my maths was excellent as it was in those days. Um, <laughs> so I've been teaching music and I've been teaching a bit of French with a Yorkshire accent too. So I do that, but also what I do is I teach a lot of interventions. Um, so myself and the deputy teach two mornings a week before school, eight till nine, uh, between February and the lead up to Sats for May. So a lot of my teaching is there at Year 6. But I also do a lot of cover for people. So if there's going to be rounds of observations that are taking place, that's going to actually mean it's longer, or there's book scrutinies that are taking place, then I will drop into those classrooms. So this year I've taught, I would say in every year group in the juniors, and I've had a little bit of time teaching the infants. I'm a bit more out of my comfort zone as I get further down, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, to me, eternal shame that I haven't got as much expertise in early years. Uh, but I spend a lot of time in all of those classrooms. I know what's going on, and of course, I have to keep abreast of developments. But for me, a lot of headship is not about what I'm doing. It's about making sure that I've got the right people who can inform me what's going on as well. So to have outstanding leaders as we have here and outstanding wider leaders means I've got an absolute hotline to what's going on. Only yesterday, uh, an incredible uh, teacher that we have here in year one who's just achieved amazing phonics results along with her year group partner. We've got virtually 80% of our children this year attaining the standard wow. in phonics in year wow. one. It's above national expectation and yet here we are serving one of the most deprived communities in Calderdale. Mm -hmm. And so I need to charge her then to make sure that the practice that's going on in early years is equally as good. Mm -hmm. So she was straight back to me telling me yesterday, this is what was good, this is what the children are doing well, this is what now needs to improve. So there's no point me now trying to improve that because she's the expert. Yeah. So I now need to work with her to ensure that she then goes and tweaks things then comes back to me too. So I need to make sure that I've got the right people in the right places. Yeah, good. I'm so I'm so happy to hear that. And it's why I wanted to ask you that question because I know that you're, you're in classes because obviously I've done a lot of supply before. I've been in a lot of schools in the area. And one thing that I think is great about Ash Green is the fact that you are in the classes. And uh, one, one thing that I always used to say um, about Ash Green, if people ask me about it, was that 
um, leadership would come into the classroom, but it was never it was never to check up necessarily on the supply teacher. It was more to check that the children were respecting the supply teacher. And that was always a brilliant thing. So I'm really glad we've talked about that. So you've been in leadership in a school. Um, is it 18 years you've been in leadership? Appreciate it, and I managed key stage yeah. two before that as well. But well, yeah. that's good. <laughs> um, how do you think the role of leadership has changed over those years? Well, do you know, I've probably touched on it in my last answer, Claire, because I think one of the brilliant things that's happened over the last 15, 20 years, from what I can see, is it's very much about a successful model now being looking at distributive leadership and how you're harnessing other people. Mm -hmm. um, there are some incredible head teachers in the country everywhere, and a lot of them, I get told, is that if that person wasn't there, I don't know what happened to that school. Now, of course, that's a massive tribute, and I would like to think that I improved the school here. However, what I learned very early on through my career and certainly working with an outstanding head teacher before I became the head teacher is the school is only as good as the systems yeah. uh, and it's only as good as the people that are there too. So you can have the most charismatic, incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking head teacher in the world, but what happens when that head teacher is not there? And I think there's been a real understanding um, much wider now. I know the best schools will have always done it, I'm not naive, uh, but a much wider understanding now that it's very, very important that you get the best people leading on the things that they're the best at mm. and that you then get the systems in place so that that's fed in in the way that we spoke about before. So I think leadership in schools has changed for the worse in some ways in that we're talking about having to do more for less. Mm. Um, for the worse in that schools are having to take more on because local authorities have been stripped back. But what that's forced schools to do in a way is go to a much more collaborative model. Mm -hmm. So we've spoken about distributive leadership in schools, but I think a big change, and I'm not an academy fan and I'm not a Matt fan, but the principle of what's behind that, I think is a very, very good one. Yeah. Um, in North Halifax, where we are now, we have had outstanding partnership work between schools going on for years. Um, the North Halifax Federation, which used to operate under Ken Inwood, uh, yeah. a great guy, you'll know Ken, um, brought a group of head teachers, a group of leaders together. That's then been developed. Calderdale were very, very forward thinking mm -hmm. and they developed the cluster system, the yeah. self-improving school system, which Stuart Smith was a big part of when he was the director in Calderdale, which meant that schools had a support network. Mm -hmm. So the less that there might have been out there, schools could rely on one another. So in terms of changes in leadership, I've spoken a little bit about what happens in our school, but I think one of the most significant changes is the way that schools are no longer an island, yeah. if that was ever the case. And I think for some schools it was. Yeah. I don't think schools looked outwardly before. Mm -hmm. And I think what's also happened is where you've got the best people working together, which I think we have in North Halifax, is that schools will be very transparent and open and they will be quite prepared to send a set of data in to another set of head teachers, which says help. You know, at the moment, my year two results may well bomb. I don't know what I'm doing here to get the writing to the standard it needs to be at. And immediately there's another school that says, well, we're on track to do really well. How about you come and look at what we're doing here? Yeah. And I think where that's being done really well, and it is in North Halifax, that is a massive shift that's gone on. Yeah. I know, and all those head teachers know, that they could pick up the phone, they can arrange a visit. I've got a young teacher here in his fourth year of teaching who came to me yesterday, third year of teaching, sorry, uh, and said, I've arranged to go and visit X school. Is it okay? Of course it is. 
tell us what you find out when you get there, come back. Yeah. So you then have a staff meeting yeah, with some yeah. CPD. What I saw when I was up at Moorside last week was yeah. some great practice in this. How about this? We've got schools working together in triads, moderating work together. So there's just so much more partnership work that I can see between schools now and also within your school. Um, I think the days of and I'm not saying it ever happened here, but the days of perhaps an individual teacher coming to school and just having to do their own thing and not knowing, uh, the days of a head teacher sitting in an office and thinking, well, I think what we're doing is good, but I don't really know, yeah. you know, are long gone. And, uh, and if that's one good thing to come out of schools, having to do more for less, then yeah. That's, yeah. That. that's that. That's really good, really good. Okay, so how do you place teachers across schools then? Um, how do you... You know, is it important to keep teachers in the same place or mix it up? Bit of both, really. Shared economy there. We're really fortunate here, I think, to have a split-site school. I think some people would find, uh, how, how does that work? And would you have an infant um, school and a junior school? Or would it be three to seven and seven to 11? What we took the decision to do, and at the time it was quite sort of, sensitive in the community because there'd been a school where we're sitting here now that was a different school to the one where I'd started working. So we, we are running single form entries at, at each site so that the community themselves love it because their children go geographically to the closest school. Mm -hmm. The key for us, of course, is to make sure, in response to your question, that those staff work together really, really closely. So in terms of where you place teachers, I think one of the things for our school is we've got to have teachers working in teams where those teachers are going to work together because all of this has got to be for the benefit of the children. So you've got to have people working together who are happy to work together. So we have a shared PPA where a year four teacher at one site and the year four teacher at the other site will work together. Now they've got to have a combined skill set that's going to give value to the education of the children in their year group. So when you ask about whether you should keep teachers where they are or whether you should move them, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, if you've got teachers who are incredibly successful in a certain year group and they're going to give the best value for those children and they're happy, keep them there. So, you know, one of the finest teachers you'll ever meet, who you'll know very well, Kate Cotton, who works at our lower site, has worked in lower key stage two for all of her career yeah. because she can make sure that what goes on in year three and four is incredible. Yeah. And it's preparing children for year five and six and it's taking them on from year two. And it also gives her the opportunity to impact so much on whole school leadership and so on and so forth. You may have another teacher who you think, you know, they've worked in that year group and after two or three years, I think they're a bit stale and I want to develop them further. So you move them elsewhere. I think we also make mistakes as head teachers. Of course we do. Um, you know, we've got a cracking young teacher at our school who I put into year five, and I'm not saying that was a mistake, far from it, but it became apparent when she was in year five, actually the style in which she teaches and the skills which she brings would be better suited further down school. Mm. So she's currently working in lower key stage two, and next year she's going to be working in key stage one, and that can happen vice versa too. I think year six and year two and reception are so accountable mm that when you find a brilliant year six teacher, and yeah. we're lucky we've got two, when you find a brilliant year two teacher, we've got two, and so on and so forth, you probably are more loath to move them. Yeah. And I think one of my future thoughts all the time is, if I was to lose that teacher in six or two, who amongst the staff, if I couldn't get somebody in to do that, would be able to do that? Yeah, 
who's ready, who's got that mentality as well, because I have to say, and it shouldn't be like this, but teaching in year six is very different to teaching in three, four yeah. and five and teaching yeah. in year two the same, because you've got to be teaching to an agenda, which unfortunately is very much about being results driven. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you don't go on and be an absolutely brilliant creative teacher, but if you don't understand all that kind of agenda, then unfortunately you're in the wrong year group. So there's a real mixture here. We have got some teachers at the school who've been in the same year group for a, for a certain period of time and others who've moved. I sometimes, because I know it worked really well for me, is have teachers taking a class through because quite often overcoming that problem with transition yeah. by having somebody teach a class for two years, particularly if they're really successful, that class works. And we've got, I'd say, four or five teachers in this school who at one time have taken a class through. Another thing that's really important, and this is very important, I think, with support staff who are such an important part of school, is to match the skills of a teacher mm -hmm. with the needs of a class. Yeah. So we've just had quite a big change for, for the next academic year in terms of our support staff, mm -hmm. where we've got six, seven members of support staff who are moving in the summer to go and work with a group of children who we feel would benefit from their input. So we've got a couple of year groups like every uh, school where you'd feel there's maybe a little bit more challenging behaviour in that class. Mm -hmm. Now, if that class is going through, are they going to be working with a teacher and a teaching assistant who are strong, who, who, who've got those skills that they're going to need? You may have another year group who are completely different where actually what that year group are going to need is they're going to need firing up. Mm -hmm. um, they're a very sedentary group of children, naturally. So actually, have we got somebody who's creative enough who's working in there? Now, that might be a teacher. Mm -hmm. It might be a teaching assistant. Yeah. So I think there's loads and loads of different factors uh, that go about your staff deployment. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so obviously you have been in teaching 22 years and we've talked about life-work balance. We've kind of mm. touched on it. How do you look after your life-work balance? Do you look after it? <laughs> Not well enough, Claire. Um, and, and I think that, you know, life-work balance is such a difficult thing for anybody in school, full stop. Yeah. But I think for school leaders and school leaders, who I think virtually all school leaders will be, who have got that real passion for how well their children are going to do, it's so difficult because you punish yourself if you feel you're stepping back from something at all. I think my life-work balance, and my children at home would probably agree, is not great. It's mm -hmm. see you at the weekend, Dad. And that's not good yeah. enough. But I think for me, from my perspective, I was very, very fortunate to work in the job that I did for two years before I came into teaching. Because that job taught me that I used to get up, I used to run three miles to work. It's like the four Yorkshiremen sketch, isn't it? I used to run three miles to work and get there to start at seven o'clock and we'd finish at five o'clock and then I'd do the same to come home. So my working day would be half past six until half past five, but it wasn't particularly mental taxing. Mm. Now, I've got a working day at the moment that's similar to that, maybe a little bit longer, but is actually feeding my mind. So I don't think that the hours I work are unreasonable and I know that I'm well rewarded for it too. I also know that having school holidays, which as anybody in education knows is nothing like the school holidays that people no. think it is, no, no. is still a privilege. Yeah. So I know people who work equally as hard as me, but when it comes to the summer, we'll have two weeks off. Whereas the reality for me is in six weeks holidays, these days, particularly knowing the job very well, I might work six or seven days at school. So in effect, I'm having the best part of four and a half weeks off, which yeah, I think yeah. is a great privilege. And I think you've got to take that time to recharge your batteries, yeah. to get some sunshine, to get some rest, knowing that there's going to be a hard term ahead. 
I think what I must do, and I do try to do, is look at ways to support senior leaders and look at ways for them to support teachers so that they have a better life-work balance. And some of the things we've done at school this year I'm really proud of um, because we've been able to work with some of the people in our school to look at how we can reduce the, um, the, the quantity of marking, the quantity of target Brilliant. setting Brilliant. without reducing the quality. So it's essential that the children are getting outstanding feedback and it's not that the teachers are having a rest. Mm -hmm. But are the, the children still able to achieve as well if the teachers have less onerous marking, less onerous target setting? We've got a fantastic set of governors here, but our governors have become accustomed over the years to having wonderful but exhaustive reports back from senior leaders. Mm -hmm. And we had a terrific meeting yesterday afternoon where our governors, as always, were so, so supportive to the fact that I was saying, I want reports to be slimmed down to you, yeah, yeah. but I'd love you to be able to come in and spend a half a day with a senior leader for them to talk you through yeah. what's going on in SEN, take you to classes to see what's going on in SEN, have a look at some of the work, speak to the children, speak to the parents. You'll be better informed mm -hmm than having a 3,000 word report that yeah. took a senior leader, Arsenko in this case, who was incredible, till midnight, three nights running, yeah. and you look through 20 pages and think, what have I actually got? Yeah. So we've got to be a lot smarter in those terms. Um, and I know that that's my job. And actually, um, and I'm not saying this in any kind of martyrdom way, I feel if I'm able to do that for other people better, then I'm doing my job. Mm. And yes, of course, I have to take a little step back and I'm probably not good good enough at delegating and I still want to do lots of the things that I've always done plus the new things that come up yeah. um, but I'm happy with that uh, and then if you're talking about head teachers achieving life work balance I suppose the advice I'd give particularly to new head teachers is that often head teachers have come through a route of doing certain tasks that they've got to realise they can't do all that anymore yeah. it took me a long time to realise that Claire in my first five years of headship I was still doing virtually every lesson observation and virtually every book scrutiny so I would say to my partner at home, you won't see me for the next two days in October half term because I'm going to spend 20 hours now going through everybody's books. Mm -hmm. And then it got to the point where I was thinking, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing all the new things that I didn't used to have to do, like budgeting yeah, or yeah, you know, yeah. every, every little element of micromanagement of staff and so on. So actually, I needed to make sure that I skilled the next person mm -hmm. up to be able to do that too. So when we talk about distributive leadership, as we spoke about, we spoke about succession planning. Mm -hmm. We've got to make sure that the right people people are able to step up and do the next bit. We have an assistant head who's going off on maternity leave uh, for the next year and we've just promoted two very talented wider leaders to become acting assistant heads for next year and the key for me is to make sure that they're able to take on some of the things that that assistant head teacher did mm -hmm. but we're also able to give them space and time to develop their own yeah. but then make sure that we're not saturating them with more than they can do. Um, so it's very much having that global view of what everybody in school is doing and making sure that people have got space and yeah. time to do it. Okay, um, and still on life-work balance then, yeah. if you could wave a magic wand for the whole country, what would you do to, to tackle the life-work balance problem? I think the life-work balance problem needs to be more of what we've just spoke about there, that the people at the very top, mm -hmm. so the people who are involved with the Department for Education, the people for Ofsted, keep doing, to be fair, what Ofsted are starting to do now, aren't they? Yeah. And that actually they are giving the message that they are encouraging you to look at your life-work balance. I think part of the problem about this is, and this is where it's not joining up, is that we have still very much got a huge accountability culture to do with standards. Yeah. And if you are telling people come on, step back a little bit, don't do this, don't do that. But people are saying, 
But I'm worried about that if I don't do that, that we're not going to make the progress we can. It's fear. So we need to step away again, which we have done through my 22 years. I've seen it go like that from the be all and end all being, what are those results at the end of it? Because you, if you are genuinely saying to people, we want you to have some life work balance, but you are still genuinely saying to people, but we need to see your results there, yeah. then that's difficult. It also comes back to funding. Um, it, you know, it's not rocket science. If schools have not got enough resources and they haven't got the staff that they need, then life work balance is never going to take place. So when we spoke at the beginning of the interview about schools hemorrhaging staff, then you can't get life work balanced if you're still trying to do what you did before, but with less people. Yes. And if councils can't provide you with the support because their budgets have been slashed, then you can't get life work balanced either. Because the guy that used to come in and do behaviour support, the woman who came and did education psychology who are no longer there, well, what are you going to do? Who's you're going to have to, who's going to do it? Schools are going to do it or schools are going to have to pay for it from already stretched budgets. So life work balance certainly can't happen in the culture and the climate that we've got at the moment. If I look back to how things were 15 to 20 years ago when the mantra was education, 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 and it was about excellence and enjoyment and all these wonderful e-words, then teachers were working incredibly hard, but there were more teachers, there were more professionals that were there to support mm. there was less children in the system yes. so with all yeah. of those things clearly there must have been a better life work balance in those days and there was because when I speak to head teachers who are far more experienced than me mm. they will tell me that they've always worked really hard but not beyond breaking point like they've done for the last 10 years yeah this is it this is it thank you so much it's been really really informative I'm going to ask you some more questions okay. just quick fire questions then so who was your favorite teacher and why that would be Mr Darcy, my, not the Mr Darcy, but Mr Brendan Darcy, who was my classical studies A-level teacher at Brooksbank. How grand that sounds. We used to read uh, plays every day together. And every day he'd teach me a new word. And quite often they'd come from these Greek plays. So he'd just fire things at me like uh, misogynistic. And uh, the bright 17-year-old that I was didn't know what misogynistic was. Maybe I was misogynistic, who knows? <laughs> and he'd tell me what that meant. And I used to feed these into my vocabulary. And when I teach now, I've got a little girl, a wonderful little girl called Paige in year six. And I will say to her, there's a great word for you, Paige. And she will write these words down. And then I will see them appear in her writing. So oh, I clearly wow. learnt something from him That's then. That's amazing that you're passing it on as well. I think he'd been a priest. And, uh, or he trained to be a priest and maybe he was lapsed. And then he came and taught A-level uh, classical studies and they went off and did something completely different too. So I hope he's still going strong and up as well. But Mr Darcy certainly inspired me. Excellent. You never know, he could be listening. I hope and he so. might get in touch. I hope so. He's probably only about 55 and I thought he was ancient in 1984. <laughs> yeah. I think he's older. <laughs> um, what do you wish that you'd known when you first started out in teaching? What a fantastic question. I probably wish I'd known everything I know now, but you can't do, can you? Yeah. I think I wish I'd known what I know is really, really important for families and for children. You know, because becoming a parent totally yeah. changes your slant on teaching. And I think, you know, I've got two wonderful girls who are now, you know, young ladies, really. And, and I think that knowing how a parent thinks and knowing how a child thinks, you don't always come into teaching knowing that. No. And I think that makes an awful difference because I particularly as a head teacher, I'd like to think that my skills with parents are really quite well honed, but they've become ever more so since I've been a parent myself because mm. knowing uh, you know, how to deal with the situation because you know how that person is feeling is key. Yeah. And I just think that 
when you've repeated so many situations so many times, you spoke about, do you, you didn't ask the question, do you become stale? You didn't say that and you wouldn't say that. But I think one of the great things about having met situations so many times before yeah. is that you know what works and what doesn't. And unfortunately, when you come into the profession, you can't know that. Yeah. But I think what I'd say to these young teachers as well is that they have to come in and be philosophical and be happy and be positive because if you do all of these things, then you're going to get more from children anyway. Mm. But you've got to come in with your eyes wide open as well which I think I probably did in terms of workload. And I think that everybody who comes into this job has got to come into it thinking, well, look, it's not going to be a bed of roses. Mm. We get reasonably paid, but not well paid enough. Mm. You're going to work really long hours. If you know all that, but you're still going to be really passionate about working with children, then come in because it's going to be one of the greatest jobs in the world. Mm. And I'll say to my daughters, who hopefully could both go on and be teachers, you've got to know those things, but don't do it if you're not fully committed to it. Yeah. What are the biggest changes you've seen in education, three of the biggest? Oh, three of the biggest. I think one of the biggest is the negative, uh, and that will be about the way that I feel that schools over the last few years are not being as highly valued. Mm -hmm. You know, when you've got um, <laughs> Michael Gove uh, saying a few years ago that he was calling the education system the blob, yeah. when it was yeah. he who was charged with trying to improve that system, you could see the way it was going. Mm -hmm. Actually, you had central government there who were saying that actually we're seeing you not as the enemy, that's far too strong, but you need putting back in your box a little bit. Yeah, and yeah. I think over the last few years, we've seen that with funding. Mm -hmm. We've seen that with some of the decisions that have been made. So I think that the funding over the last few years and the way that schools have lost services that have been there before has been a big change. Out of the ashes, as we said earlier, one of the biggest changes that I've seen in a real positive way is that schools are, are working together collaboratively. Yeah. I've talked about not being a big fan of academisation and not being a big fan of multi-academy trust. However, let me say categorically, I'm a huge fan of collaborative working. Yeah. And where the best multi-academy trusts are working, it must be a dream because you've got schools who are intrinsically linked to one another who yeah. can support each other through strengths, through weaknesses, etc. So I think the way that schools are working more collaboratively over the last few years has been a real positive change. And I guess, I suppose, the last change I'd say, which is significant, is quite a sad one. It's the changes to schools themselves so that I've seen small schools closed down mm. or swallowed up. I've seen schools that are successful get bigger and bigger and bigger and schools that are seen as not successful as having to cope with dwindling numbers. Yeah. So we've got schools now who have a very different deal. Our school is successful but we also serve a community where there's a lot of children now, I'm guessing that if the school wasn't successful, they'd vote with their feet and they'd take the children elsewhere. Mm. But I'm very fortunate in that having 420 places from reception to year six with about 416 children here at the moment is great. But a change that you're seeing is that there may be a school not that far away who's mm. thinking, how on earth am I going to get through? I've got 10 kids coming in reception. Mm. So they're operating in a little bit of a climate of fear. Uh, and so what I've seen clearly in my time here is I've seen schools that used to be here, some of whose names you will know and might have even forgotten about, who no longer exist. Mm. And other schools spring up quite often powered by money that's come maybe through multi-academy trusts. Who would have thought here in North Halifax that 10 years ago we wouldn't have the faith-based school that was there, Holy Trinity. We wouldn't have the Catholic school that was there. We wouldn't have the secondary school that was up in Ovenden, the Ridings, and instead we would have a £32 million building that actually takes most of those children. And I'm not saying that's a negative, but wow, what a change.
Yeah, lots of changes. I think it's hard to pick three, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, who is your inspiration within education? Um, I could pick out individuals and say somebody like David Kirk, who you know I came and worked under, a guy who probably also worked far too hard. That's why my hair's gone and his hair's grey. Um, <laughs> but to see somebody like that who was so passionate about this community and saw absolutely no ceiling whatsoever, mm -hmm. who brought these children to having residentials, to performing in musical productions, mm -hmm. to having children who would have had no aspiration or little aspiration and to be able to carry on his work so that I've now got children who I've taught who are now teachers. And I'm not talking two or three here, we're talking double figures that I've seen go through and become teachers. I've got, I don't know, so many inspirational figures to me that I've worked with in the professional learning community. But not being cheesy, quite genuinely, I think the biggest inspiration for me are the children of Mixon, and there's no doubt about it, because otherwise I still wouldn't be here. Yeah. And actually, to have these children and to see them come in and see some of them at children's centres, babies, but certainly it's three years old, and see what they can achieve, and knowing that sometimes they're achieving that against the odds, and they're achieving that because of our school, and that I'm privileged to be the head teacher of this school, is the inspiration. And to say that they then go on and become teachers is wonderful, mm -hmm. but teaching is not the be all and end all. So to see these children come back and say, these are my children, or I'm now working at such and such. Or yesterday I had a proud grandma come to me to tell me that a girl who I taught not that long ago had just got a first class honours wow. in a dissertation and a degree. And I have a young lass who came to our summer fair to tell me, I'm on track for a first in my creative writing, and I've just had some stories published and think, that child is doing that because of what they did here at school. So they are far more inspirational than an individual, as much as I've worked with some inspirational individuals. Wow, I think we're both getting slightly emotional. <laughs> <laughs> That's just um, tiredness, doing reports till midnight, you know, life-work balance. <laughs> yeah, so um, last question then, what did you want to be when you grew up? Maybe what I still want to do when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> certainly when I was a, as, as a child, I would have loved to have played sport and I was lucky to play sport at a reasonable level, but I was never good enough to play professionally. And uh, failing that, I really wanted to be a sports journalist. Mm -hmm. I like to write, I like to speak and I love sport. But then I think teaching was always there. So that's always been something that I've wanted to do. And I think at the moment I am probably doing just about my dream job. Now, what I want to do when I really grow up uh, <laughs> is I've always quite wanted to be a postman, and I still do. Uh, and I think my ambition is probably to get to a stage in life where maybe I think, well, this school can go on and do really well without me. I can do really well without perhaps the, the salary and the pressure that I have at the moment. And I would still like to think that sometime, maybe in my 50s, uh, I will be out being a postman and meeting people and walking and just perhaps having a little less pressure and a little less, uh, less people to answer to, really. You, you best get into it soon. It might be drones soon. I know, I know. I might have to be a white van driver instead, but then I would get fatter instead of slimmer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I think the listeners are going to find it so helpful and insightful. I think it's going to be really helpful for um, head teachers to listen to, but I also think often I find, obviously, as a, the director of a company, sometimes... Uh, somebody will get in the car with me and they just they tap me for information and it's like that it's like that for teachers across the UK that they get insight from a head teacher because it's not really often that we have time for those conversations no, so no no you're welcome thank, thank you, you so, so much, much. Cheers. Thank, you. thank you cheers thank you
Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. I wanted to thank Mungo once again for being a guest on the podcast and giving a great interview that was honest and really stands up for all schools struggling with the budget cuts. Also thank you to everyone at Ash Green for giving us the use of a classroom at the last minute to record and film it while the children were on a school trip. A special mention too to all the staff and pupils who made my memories at the school so fond. This episode is now live on YouTube as well, so don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you've got any suggestions for guests that you would like me to interview, then let me know. I've got a Facebook community called The Teacher's Podcast, and it'd be great to see you in there, and you can find the link to this in the show notes. In the group, you can suggest guests and you can have some input into the questions that I ask guests that we've already confirmed. I've got some great educational influencers and authors coming up soon, and I'd just love to know who else you want to hear from. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and I'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review too. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teacher's Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets, a provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.